From Utah Public Radio, this is Undisciplined. I'm Matthew LaPlante. It may be hard to believe, but toward the end of the 19th century, many scientists thought we had solved all of the big questions about physics. Everything in the universe was made of atoms, and atoms were the smallest possible units of matter, and the movement of all of that matter could be adequately described by a relatively small number of fundamental laws. The aim of physics, of course, is understanding how the universe and everything in it behaves, and as long as Isaac Newton's laws were sufficiently explaining all the things that we could observe— I guess it makes some sense that so many scientists were so smugly confident that physics was essentially a solved equation. But then in 1895, a physicist named Wilhelm Röntgen was experimenting in his lab when he stumbled upon evidence of a penetrating form of high-energy electromagnetic radiation, a phenomenon that we later came to know as X-rays. And this set into motion a chain of events that led other scientists to recognize that these rays weren't made of atoms, but subatomic particles, electrons. And with that, the idea that we knew everything about physics vanished in the haze. In her new book, The Matter of Everything, Susie Sheehy tells the story of physics from the dismantling of classical physics and the discoveries that gave us a view of the world beyond atoms, to today's modern experiments in particle physics, neutrinos, quarks, dark matter, and the so-called God particle, the Higgs boson. And here's the thing. She has somehow managed to make these explanations really, really accessible. So today, we're going to talk to her about physics, but also about how she realized as an accelerator physicist that she could make what she does interesting and understandable for people who don't happen to be experts in things like fixed-field alternating gradient accelerators. She he runs research groups at the universities of Oxford and Melbourne, where she's developing new particle accelerators for applications in medicine. Her new book is called The Matter of Everything, 12 Experiments That Changed Our World. Susie Sheehy, welcome. Thank you. It's great to be here. Thanks for having me on. You started your book in Würzburg, Germany in 1895 with this guy, Wilhelm Röntgen, who you say, like many other scientists at the time, thought that the subject of physics was you know, kind of nearing completion. And, and when I read this in your book, I, th- I thought at first, that this was sort of a ridiculous idea that these people had. And then and then on second thought, I wondered, maybe we're not even any different these days when it comes to what we assume to be really well-answered questions about science. Do you, do you think we're more humble now? Um, I think we've learned from our experience a little bit that um, just when we, the point at which we assume that things are done, we need to look a little bit beyond that and ask, well, you know, is there evidence that there's something beyond our current knowledge? And that was certainly true at the turn from the 19th to the 20th century, that if you really thought about it, you know, thinking the atoms are the smallest building blocks, well, okay, maybe, and all of chemistry works from that. But they couldn't explain how the sun shone and generated energy. Um, they couldn't explain the sort of structure and formation of our universe. And yet, yeah, you had these uh, physicists like uh, Albert Michelson, who had 
just a decade earlier, established that the ether, which was this sort of hypothetical substance that light was supposed to travel through, he's he'd done sort of one of the definitive experiments that had shown that the ether didn't actually exist. And he said, yeah, in 1894, just before all of this sort of falls apart, he said, it seems probable that most of the grand underlying principles have been firmly established. And I think that's really, it's really interesting. And it one of the things that taught me about this sort of hubris or ego side of physicists is that although physics itself is supposed to be objective, physicists and scientists generally themselves are not objective, right? We're very susceptible to all the biases that anyone else has. When you think about that, do you, I mean, you must think about your own biases, right? You, I mean, like when you, 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 made this a, a central theme in your book and, and in many of the talks that you've given. When you look at your own work, do you go, God, what is it? Like, I know there's something I'm missing, but what what is it? <laughs> um, yeah, I guess over the years, uh, physicists especially have had to develop extremely sophisticated ways of trying to unbias themselves, at least in their analysis of data and their analysis of phenomenon that they observe in their experiments. So the requirement of the evidence in particle physics for a new particle to claim a discovery is so much higher than the evidence that we require in almost any other field, including in fields like medicine that affect us directly. But even then, the questions we go out and ask about the world can still have bias in them. They can still have ego in them. They can still follow fads like trying to test particular theories that everybody thinks are beautiful or compelling. Um, And in my own work, yeah, I guess what I try and do is at least not fall into the fads that everybody else is working on and get excited and jump on a bandwagon. And part of that is sort of sticking to your guns of the own, yeah, the thing that you're working on and um, making sure that you're seeing that through before you jump off and jump on something else that looks exciting to, <laughs> you know, over the other side. Well, you you, meant, you mentioned this idea, like, like just like the 19th century, we're having chuck out a lot of theories that we've sort of held dear for a while. So there there is this historical precedent for this moment in time where things are changing very rapidly. Um, and I wanted to go back to that. Let's go back to Runjin. His, his discovery of x-rays set into motion this, this century of further exploration. And I was thinking about this, like, what if he hadn't, right? Like, was it inevitable if if he hadn't essentially just been playing around with these tubes in his labs and hadn't come upon x-rays? Do you think it would have just been a short matter of time before someone else would or? Yeah, or in that just, particular yeah? case, in that particular case, there were hundreds of scientists playing with um, cathode ray tubes, which is the instrument that he was using. Hundreds of physicists had them around their labs. Actually, they were used as a kind of demonstration device because they looked pretty. And then what Ronkin found was that aside from the glowing rays, which they couldn't explain, outside the tube were also these invisible rays, which ended up being called X-rays, is penetrating high-energy form of light. Um, but it was actually after that, sort of a year or two after Ronkin's discovery, that J.J. Thompson in the UK used a very similar piece of apparatus with cathode rays, and he was then finally determined to go, okay, well, what are these rays actually made of? Because at the time, atoms were supposed to be the smallest particle in nature. And he was like, okay, but maybe they're just atoms of the gas inside the tube that are somehow streaming down and causing this light. Um, whereas in Germany, Röntgen and his colleagues would have assumed at that time that the cathode rays themselves were a form of light. So I think even 
even though Ronkin's story is a lovely one um, and J.J. Thompson's story is a, is a lovely one and they were both very prepared to make those discoveries as curious scientists who spent a lot of time in their labs and really focused in on these, these experiments. I think within, I would say, 10 years of when they made this discovery, it would have been made by someone else anyway, I'm pretty sure, because there were enough people with with those instruments around. Um, that is very different to our situation today, right? If you have to build a large hadron collider or something even bigger to make your discovery, it's not like there's hundreds of those sitting around. So that Wait, makes you, you don't just have fun. one like in your garage? We have one right here. So we have this complex job, this complex machine, this complex way of doing analysis of what the machine is trying to tell us. Um, but in, and that sort of, I, I, at least in my mind, that conflicts a little bit with one of the things that you point out in your book, which is that multiple times across the history of physics, it's really been quite simple experiments that are just conducted by a few individuals who are sometimes just toying around with new equipment, you know, equipment that makes, you know, pretty colors <laughs> in their labs um, and, and toying around with new ideas. And, and this is really what's driven some really big leaps in the evolution of this field of science. And you're still a big fan of this approach, this sort of curiosity driven science, even though we are in this world where we're the the big experiments are very, very big, literally big and also very complex. Right. Well, I think that's the biggest change that happens in this 120 years of experiments that I talk through in the book is just the scale change from individual lab experiments to these big mega, mega labs. But I should point out that there are still small experiments that happen. Um, the difference here is uh, the small experiments often now are only able to look for sort of one very specific thing. But the sort of scales of energy and the accessibility of new phenomenon was so much easier 120 years ago, right? Because no one had discovered any of this stuff. It was like it was just there almost right in front of them and all they needed was the instruments to be able to see it. So, for example, the invention of a device called a cloud chamber, which was the first detector which enabled people to visualize the passage of radiation. Well, when you talk about, for instance, the cloud chamber, right? Like even knowing that this was a piece of machinery that was built, you know, many, many years ago, initially it sounds really complicated, but one of your early forays into communicating your science was a video in which you explain in really just a few minutes, it's a really short video, how to make a cloud chamber, how to make a particle detector. Oh my goodness, detector. did you find that video? That's embarrassing. It's so great. No, it's so great. And here's what you use. You use a clear plastic cup, some putty, a couple of trays, some felt, a light, some alcohol, and some dry ice. That's pretty much it. And Anybody could make their own cloud chamber. Yeah, that's one of the wonderful things about it is, um, although the original version had some sort of expanding glass vessels, yeah, today we know you can make it just um, with a yeah with some alcohol vapor that falls down to the bottom to a really cold metal tray at the bottom. That's why you need the dry ice. And then that forms a layer of what's called a supersaturated layer of vapor. All it takes is a little bit of energy uh, and something for, for a little cloud droplet 
to form. And of course, up in the atmosphere, there's dust, there's electrical charges, there's all sorts of things um, that drive the formation of, of clouds. But within this very, you know, sort of organized chamber set up, or even a very simple one under a plastic cup, as I used, um, what causes that uh, little cloud to form is a little bit of a deposition of energy from a charged particle traveling through um, through the cup. So that's either something from a radioactive decay in the earth around us. There's naturally all these minerals around us in the earth um, that cause a tiny bit of radiation. And then there's also uh, cosmic rays raining down on us from space all the time. Um, and it was actually the cosmic rays that this chamber helped us understand uh, what they're composed of. So just occasionally you'll see pass through one of these chambers, this little sort of white tr cloud trail. Um, and as it passes through, it creates these little tiny droplets, which turn into to white clouds. And then you can see it or photograph it. It is one of the most mesmerizing things that you'll see to realize that you've been sitting here your whole life and all of these all of these particles have been traveling through you and you had no idea at all. And then suddenly with this device, you can see them. And it's absolutely incredible. You have such a palpable sense of awe to you when you talk about these things that that comes from these moments where I think you're satiating your own curiosity. I wanted to ask you about that because you began studying physics when you were in primary school, which, you know, is like really lovely. And also, I got to tell you, not normal. And I think that people would look at a child like this and they go, oh, that one is innately curious. But you've also been this huge advocate for helping stoke curiosity, among others, which tells me you know, you largely believe that it's also a learned trait and, and maybe it's both of these things, but I'm curious about how you see this aspect of us, which is so important for driving science. Is it, is it who we are innately or is it part of what we can learn about this great world? Well, it's interesting. Yeah. So there's, yeah, the curiosity and the, the awe aspect, I guess it's all intertwined. I should clarify, I didn't formally study any physics in, in primary school. We had this, I had this wonderful teacher at my primary school who would set these little challenges to our class um, as an extra thing. And, um, you know, to, to make something, uh, you know, I remember one challenge was to make a, um, a thermos flask, you know, that lasted, you know, they kept the water warm as long as possible. And I won that one and uh, won a little piece of circuit board and it was my most prized possession for a while. And I think, I think um, what he was doing is, is what they call in the, the literature, because there's, there's actually a, a sort of field of research of people who study, like, why is it that people become scientists and how is it that people um, engage in, in these subjects and decide that they want to do it for a career? And what they what those studies show is that you have to build something called science capital. Um, and I would I would say that a strong emotional part of building science capital is stoking that curiosity and awe aspect. Um, and what that means is that, for example, you can uh, expose a sort of a child to science or to people in their life who are scientists who normalize the curiosity who normalize um, the act of asking questions that maybe nobody knows the answers to. And instead of telling that child, I'll stop asking difficult questions, they might be like, I don't know, let's try and find out together. So so when I've delved into this book, it's something I'm 
quite interested in myself is how do people become scientists? Why does one person choose to be a scientist and not the other? Um, And I'm particularly interested in this because I have an identical twin sister who also studied physics to the end of school, but then went on to do history and philosophy. And I've always been interested in, well, how come I was the one who decided that I could do science and could become a scientist? I feel so much like we should get her on the phone because <laughs> I, I, I'm wondering right now, Susie, if she's thinking, you know, the same thing. She's like, I wonder what happened to Susie that she did not become the kind of academic that I am, that she really like, she she only did this physics thing instead. Yeah, she's a museum curator now. Oh my gosh, she probably looks down at you. She looks down at your career path then, right? She's <laughs> uh, I think she's I think she's doing all right. We're both surprised that I wrote a book first, though, I have to say. <laughs> no, she, is she is she working amazing. on one? We have an idea to write one together. I think you're motivating it even further now. <laughs> so um we'll see. Yeah, my sister and I sort of reconverged, realizing that actually the different paths that we'd taken, even though she took the sort of more philosophical and history path and I took the more scientific path, later on as we matured, we realized we were actually asking similar questions about the world. We were just going about it in a very different way. I've really enjoyed in my career all of those conversations that I have with people outside of physics, so especially people working in in the arts and creative industries Oh, they just come up with these beautiful questions um, and they might not make sense in a technical way, but they expand the way that you think about what it is that you do. Um, so I think we have a lot more in common across different disciplines than most people would admit. And this is a another theme in your book. It's important to develop a spirit of doing stuff just to do stuff. Like not because you're trying to achieve or make the next discovery per se, but just because, you know, you're tinkering in the lab or you're, you know, you're just curious about something and you want to satiate this little bit of curiosity. And you you mentioned JJ Thompson earlier. Um, I know you're fond of a story about him, his, his work building upon Runchin's x-ray discovery led the way to um, to the discovery of the electron. And Thompson, though, wasn't sure at the time, like what the heck electrons were good for. Right, right. In, in his lab at the time, they had this toast to the electron. May it never be of use to anybody. May uh, it never yeah. be of use to anybody. It's like this <laughs> so wonderful that this idea that like it is better to just play around with something absent, absent any pressure to actually do anything with it. Right. I mean, all of us, I think, have felt that that shift in the way that we work or the way that we think. If someone says, you must get this thing done, here's the end goal, you know, there's a stakeholder at the other end who needs this result, and you're like, okay, any little thing that comes up along the way, I'm going to ignore it because I'm focused on this goal. But if you throw that away and you just honestly go in and go, huh, this thing's interesting, I wonder how it works. It's just psychologically such a different approach. And that's what I refer to as curiosity-driven research. Some of our listeners might not realize, but J.J. Thompson's discovery of the electron, and then a couple of years later, he described, um, again, using more experiments, he was able to establish how electrons jump out of metals and travel through uh, these tubes. And that understanding was exactly what um, engineers needed in order to produce the first electronic 
devices, uh, which means so electronic devices is where the electrons jump through vacuum or through gas, whereas electrical devices is where electrons travel through a wire. So electronic devices are much, much faster. And suddenly we could have valves and amplifiers and transmitters and receivers, and we could have telecommunications and radio and the first computers. And it gave birth to the entire electronics industry. This spirit of tinkering and investigation and being willing to look at different things, even if they might even seem a little bit silly, not, as we said earlier, not for development or commodification, but just for the sake of satiating curiosity. We we know this does continue today, but do you think it's at risk in a world in which it often seems there has to be a market incentive or a, a seriousness about exploration? Yeah, I think, so towards the end of the book, I sort of reflect on this a little bit about one of the things I've tried to do is to write in the stories through this 120 years of experimentation of all the amazing inventions and technologies that have come about. But I do this with a sort of big fear that people are then going to read that and go, oh, okay, so we're going to f- specifically fund only the applied stuff, which is going to lead to these amazing inventions, when actually the point is that we don't know what's going to come out of it when we set out on a journey of curiosity-driven research. And this is hard to explain without examples, right? So take the World Wide Web. Um, so I know in the US that, that there was uh, the invention of the TCP IP protocol, but the rest of the pieces of the what we now call the World Wide Web was invented by a guy called Tim Berners-Lee um, in the late 1980s. And he realized that with all this data, with these big experiments and with collaborators, thousands of collaborators all over the world, that there was not going to be a way to have a central computer that held all the data that people could access. It just wasn't going to work like that. And so he invented the, the HTTP protocol. He invented... Um, Uh, HTML, I think, as well, from memory, um, and a bunch of the other protocols and put them out there in the public domain. And his idea at the time was it was an information sharing idea for scientists to share data. Um, but, But by putting it out there in the public domain, what he created was what we now know as the World Wide Web. Um, And that absolutely transformed our society. Like, we can't imagine now living without access to the internet. We have a lot of challenges before us right now. Climate change, endangered biodiversity, Ulysses in the book, water scarcity, energy demands, pandemics. It it can all feel really overwhelming. But you have said that you are optimistic. And you wrote in the book that if a subject as esoteric sounding as particle physics can change our world so profoundly that it must be true that curiosity-driven research is the kind of pursuit that can transform our future in ways we can't yet imagine. It's been a few years since you put those words on page. Has that feeling strengthened? Has it weakened? Do you see the trajectory of science as offering us some salvation still? I do. I am I am still an optimist. <laughs> I mean, obviously, while I was writing this those words, we were in the midst of a pandemic. Um, and I tell the story in the book as well about how curiosity-driven research has given us these tools, these big labs that can analyze things like the proteins 
on SARS-CoV-2 to understand the structural biology and give us the possibility of having things like mRNA vaccines. Um, And so I see how all these different fields and ideas build upon one another over time to enable us to have these capabilities to approach the challenges that we have. Now, on the other hand, the challenges we're facing can no longer be solved usually now by one individual or even one group or lab or even country. The big challenges that we face now are global challenges. And what that requires is for us to learn how to work together to solve something or work towards something that is greater than our individual or national needs. And so I think that human story of what we've learned to do there is part of what gives me this big hope for the future that we will manage to solve these challenges, not just because this collaboration and idea seeking, you know, can come up with such wonderful groundbreaking ideas that might pose a new way of solving something that we didn't see coming. But I still see this story as a story of one of hope of what we can do if we work together. That's Susie Sheehy. She's a particle accelerator researcher at the universities of Oxford and Melbourne and the author of The Matter of Everything, 12 Experiments That Changed Our World. Susie Sheehy, thank you so much. Thank you. It's been lovely. Undisciplined is a production of Utah Public Radio, and if you happen to live in Utah, you can listen to us on UPR every Thursday morning at 1030 and on KCPW at 10 on Thursday and noon on Sunday. If you miss us then, you can listen to every episode of Undisciplined wherever you get your podcasts. Our program is supported by a generous grant from the College of Humanities and Social Sciences at Utah State University and from public radio listeners like you. Our producer is Claire Scott. Our theme music is Little Idea by Benjamin Tissot. And I'm Matthew LaPlante. Thanks for listening. Now go have big ideas.